Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Travel can, of course, lead to the discovery of new passions and new pursuits, But for others, it's their passions that lead to them living a life of travel. And that's how it went down for my guest today, who now finds himself on the road for up to half the year. And he even owns some land in South America. You're going to hear how it all went down and plenty more in today's interview segment. And this was one of the coolest ways I've ever started an interview, or should I say warmest ways? I'll fill you in on what that's all about. And we're going to have a little chat about where passion meets travel. And I'll share some personal examples on how that has happened for me and in the process, give you some ideas on how you might want to combine some of your other passions with travel at some point. And it's all happening right now here on this show. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend, and thank you so much for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This show is here to help you travel the world on your terms, to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Thanks once again for being a part of this global community, the Zero to Travel Caravan. I got a shout out coming later to somebody who took care of 19 different animals while she was on the road with her husband. It'll all make sense a little later. (laughs) Stick around for that. And we're going to have a little discussion on where travel meets passion and how one thing can lead to another. I'll share some personal examples and just share some thoughts around that. So stick around for that all happening at the end of the interview segment, which we're going to get into in just a second. First, I have to tell you about (laughs) the coolest way I've ever started an interview, or should I say... The warmest way, and I got to do this interview in person, which is always a treat because I do a lot of interviews over Skype because it's a travel podcast. People are traveling, so it's not all the time that I'm able to get my guests here in Oslo, Norway, where I'm based, and then we can sit down and have a chat. So I was so excited to get to do this in person with one of the world's best baristas, coffee baristas. He is recognized as one of the world's best, and When you get to sit down for an interview with one of the world's best baristas, 
and he makes your coffee, that is a pretty cool way to start a conversation. A warm way, I said, get it, because coffee is warm. It's a warm beverage, okay. I know this isn't a comedy podcast, but I'm doing my best here. Thank you very much. Anyway, what a treat. I certainly wasn't going to ask him to make me coffee, but he did, and that was pretty dope. I was pretty pumped to be drinking a coffee from one of the recognized masters out there. And if you know coffee or you like coffee and you ever come through Oslo, you got to go to Tim Wendell Bowes. It's a pilgrimage for coffee nerds or just people who like coffee in general. It's very well known and it's definitely a place that people go when they're in Oslo's Tim Wendell Bowes Espresso Bar. I've been there and it's a wonderful place and they make incredible coffee. So go there next time you're in Oslo, Norway. And by the way, you'll notice at that coffee shop that what do they use to make coffee? The AeroPress, which is supporting today's show. If you go to aeropressinc.com, you can see my favorite coffee maker. Not only can you see it, you can get it. Don't screw around. If you like coffee, pick up an AeroPress. AeroPressInc.com. A-E-R-O-PressInc.com is the website. You got to see what this thing looks like. It makes the best cup of coffee. It's just clean and delicious. And it's relatively small. So if you want to have incredible coffee while you're on the road, you can chuck it in your car on a road trip. You can chuck it in your suitcase or your backpack even and take it with you and have amazing coffee anywhere you go. I could go on and on about it, but I will just leave you with this. If it's good enough for Tim Wendelbow, my guest today, who is one of the world's greatest baristas, if it's good enough for him to use at his espresso bar, then I think that speaks for itself there. So you can check it out again, aeropressinc.com. Thanks again to them for supporting today's show. Now let's slip and slide into today's interview, or should I say, sip and slide. I'll see you on the other side, my friend. I'm sitting here in this beautiful new coffee roastery owned by my guest today, Mr. Tim Wendelbow, sitting right across from me. Tim's a well-known and highly respected coffee expert. He's won many prestigious awards in the coffee world, including World Barista Championship, uh, the World Cup Tasting Champion 2005, and winner of the Nordic Roasting title three years running, just to name a few. So congratulations on all that. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> His website is timwendelbo.no, T-I-M-W-E-N-D-E-L-B-O-E.no. He's got a ton of helpful educational videos to make you uh, help you make better coffee at home. He's also got this great subscription service where you can order his coffee and get it right to your doorstep, which I'm actually about to do. It's on my list of things to do. Uh, I'm really excited about that. And you're forever in Oslo. You have to pay a visit to his espresso bar, which I've been to many times, and I'm honored that you made time to chat today. Tim, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast. Thank you very much. Um, We were just chatting about your roastery, and you have this lab over here, and and we're in this middle room that, that you have this whole vision for. And is it crazy to think that this all came out of your head like did you ever think you'd be sitting your in your own roastery like this is this well uh, actually no i thought the space that i rented 10 years ago which is our store yeah would be more than enough you know for the future but yeah. uh, it didn't take long before that was too small and uh we had to i have a training room there as well but we slowly had to use it for other purpose and now of course we moved the roastery so now i can use that room again but 
uh, we we get a lot of requests to do uh, you know trainings for up to thirty people or even more. So I needed a bigger space to do that. And uh, if I you know if I knew ten years ago that I would grow this big, we are still quite small. But uh, in terms of space, I didn't really think about having a space like this. So it's not cheap, but uh, I think you know it enables us to do a lot lot more fun stuff in the future. Do you get overwhelmed at all? Like as you see things grow and you're kind of in the middle of this this beast that you created <laughs> and it's just kind of taken a life of its own, it seems. The, yeah, uh, a little bit. Like uh, I used to work for a coffee chain uh, called Stockflats and then when I did that, I went from running one very small store, it was like 20 square meters uh, and we opened another one and then we opened another one and then all of a sudden I was running six stores and running means you're running around yeah. uh, trying to <laughs> fix literally stuff running that, yeah <laughs> stuff is breaking all the time you know people are sick away from work so uh when i did this move i i have told myself i never want to run more than one store yeah. because it's a lot of uh work and uh, you know it's just very stressful but uh having a space for the roastery just we had to like we didn't have a choice and uh, of course stuff breaks here as well and uh, there's more <laughs> problems but um at least i've learned to uh you know give responsibility to other people so when ben one of my roasters emails me and says well uh, the roaster isn't working the way it should i'm like well then you have to fix that you know yeah, right. i don't have to do everything so right. uh that's the good thing about it but uh it's kind of uh, still now a little nerve-wracking to to rent such a big space because uh i mean it's not that big but uh for me it's big but I don't want to do the same mistake that I did 10 years ago where we rented, you know, way too small of a space from the beginning. Uh, so it's better to have a little bit too much space now yeah. so we can grow into it, I think. Sure. Yeah, which is always a little, can be a little risky as yeah, a business sure. owner, I guess, but you have to balance those things. Um, I know you just got back from Columbia and coffee and, and travel do yes. go together, particularly with what you do. So we are going to talk travel today. Great. I was wondering a little bit about your relationship with coffee growing up because one of my first memories i swear this is this was like a huge part of my childhood was my parents just talking about coffee in the morning like when's the coffee going to be ready is the yeah. coffee on are you making the coffee smelling the coffee when i first got up it was like the entire morning revolved around coffee until everybody got their coffee and then everybody could shut up about yeah the coffee, that's true you know <laughs> <laughs> um what was it like for you growing up was it a big thing in your house uh it wasn't a big thing it's always been part of you know norwegian culture is yeah. coffee uh, but um i remember uh, specifically when my mom had like a knitting club with <laughs> ladies they never made anything they were just sitting there chatting and eating cake and drinking coffee but uh they called they had it was like a knitting club you know? it wasn't about the knitting no, no. for sure <laughs> but uh i remember probably around when i was 12 or something like that uh i started making coffee for them for the knitting club oh, okay yeah and uh they always said oh when i make coffee it's always tasting so good of course my trick was just to have an extra spoon of coffee in the so i you know i don't know <laughs> if they, that was sincere or not but um, that was your first recipe <laughs> yeah and i i just remember the smell uh yeah. but i i tasted it of course uh i didn't like it like any no. other kids no and the only way i could drink it was to dip a sugar cube into the coffee and then suck the coffee out of the sugar cube, <laughs> uh, which I kind of also didn't like too much because it yeah. was too sweet. But then, um, uh, yeah, so I didn't really have that. It wasn't that big in my family, to be honest. But uh, when I started doing exams uh, at high school, then we had this instant coffee machine. Uh, 
that everyone you know was drinking so many cups of coffee from to stay awake during the exams little right. did i know that typical student yeah but there's almost no caffeine in instant coffee so it was kind of pointless <laughs> oh, really i didn't know that. but uh, i remember i tried it and i i really hated it so i didn't drink coffee until i started working with it and then i tasted a cup of coffee that was actually not unpleasant to drink <laughs> and then uh, i kind of got interested uh, just by starting working with it so yeah, I don't have that many memories from it, but uh, there's like small drops here and there. Well, how did you start working with it? Uh, did it was it because you weren't that interested in it? It sounds like was no, it just sure a not. random job type yeah, of thing. Yeah, I, I actually during high school I worked in a grocery store, and I worked in the fruit section, and then I was sitting in the till, you know, cashier, and then uh, that was kind of boring. So um, I left, and then I just needed a job because I didn't want to study. I wanted to have like a year off and then I was looking for a work to work in a bar for two reasons. You get tips, so you make more money than yeah. you know the average job. And there's a lot of girls in bars. And you know, <laughs> I was nineteen, so two good reasons. Yeah. I I wasn't old enough to work in a bar. Then I just walked the streets and looked at the sign in the door that says we're hiring and it turned out to be a coffee shop. I didn't even know what a coffee shop was. Like, I didn't know that that even existed. Yeah. I thought, you know, it was just cafes were cafes. They served beer and, you know, some food. and Right. Uh, so that's how it started. And um, there was no one running that store. So that's kind of my first interest was to, you know, run the store. Because I thought it would, you know, be good for my career in eventually to mm -hmm. have run something. And I had some experience with that uh, through the grocery store. I was running the fruit section while the bus was on vacation and stuff. So I knew how to kind of make shift plans. I knew how to order stuff. Uh, I knew how to plan for orders. And uh, this was very similar. Like uh, it was just, you know, buying and selling coffee. Yeah. And then uh, I went to a small course with uh, my old espresso master called Willie. And uh, he showed a passion that was, you know, difficult to not uh, catch on. So right. um, when he kind of showed the, the pride of just serving a cup of coffee and how much effort goes into it, uh, I just, you know, I need to learn more. Yeah. And um, my customers didn't know much about coffee back then. I didn't know anything. So, you know, we, it, on occasion we would have a customer coming in and ordering a drink and I didn't even know what it was. So I had to ask them, you know, what is that? And that, that's not a good feeling. So yeah. um, it, you, I was kind of pushed into just learning more. And the more I learned, the more interest I grew inside me. Isn't it amazing how one person's passion about something can be so infectious? Like yeah. you can just <laughs> really, their energy can be so high around it, whatever that vibration is, whatever, that you just yeah. can't help but get excited about it. Yeah. I know through your work, now you're doing that for other people. Yeah, hopefully. Cool I, I like to think that I can inspire people to, you know, even if it's not coffee, but like with food or wine, just to, you know, try something that is better than what your average product is. Yeah. So the same guy who taught me how to make espresso got me kind of hooked on making sourdough bread. And... Uh, <laughs> Like, uh, <laughs> he's really good at it. And yeah. uh, I just, whenever I make a really nice uh, loaf, I send a photo to him and say, hey, look at this, you know, <laughs> <laughs> look at the air bubbles. And but I mean, if like that day you hadn't wandered into a coffee shop to get a job, say it was a brewery or something and you could work there legally, do you think you would have been a, a brewer or something? Is that your personality? Are you just hyper curious about things in that way and a tinkerer? Or? I don't know. Like, I think 
my interest for food has always been there. Yeah. Because I always liked when my stepmom made really nice food. Like yeah. I was the first one to eat garlic in my class, believe it or not. Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> garlic wasn't a thing in Norway. But, uh, and I really enjoyed good food and the kind of uh, culture around luxury or like indulgence. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that came from, but uh, I've always kind of enjoyed enjoying life. But um, hmm. if I didn't start working in a coffee shop, I probably would have gone to the military. I was there for one day, I got out. Uh, or I probably would have studied something like marketing or something. I don't know. Yeah. I always had a desire to become a chef. It was kind of already too late for me to become a chef when I finished high school. Because in Norway, you normally take like in a specialized high school for becoming a chef or waitress. Or yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Where did you grow up? Like what part of Norway? So I grew up in Bærum, uh, which is the snobby municipality outside of Oslo. <laughs> uh, but uh, Bærum is very diverse. You have like uh, a lot of um, governmental, or at least it used to be a lot of governmental flats in the area where I lived at Rikken and also Bærumsverk. And it was kind of a newly established area. Um, so a whole mix of people living there had a great childhood, you know, very safe. Yeah. Um, very suburban. Uh, but then at 17, I started going to Oslo, hanging out, you know, smoking cigarettes and doing stuff that I shouldn't do. And Being uh, a teenager, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got some older friends, you know, we started going to bars, sneaking in. I wasn't old enough, you know, all these yeah. kind of things. So my childhood, although I was in Bærum, my adult life has been here in Oslo since I was, you know, 17, 18. Yeah. And you've Obviously, being so close to the city, I mean, you're getting the culture of the city as well. Yeah, yeah for and, sure. And, you know, we were talking about being a part of the community and, and through education, you're doing that through coffee and just the work that you're doing and how that's important to you. And is it, it must be pretty satisfying to have things where they are now and to be able to say, hey, like we're firmly in this community and this is where you grew up. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. So that's a special thing. And my wife grew up in Engedal, which is... Utpuland. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Countryside. Uh, it's about 45 minutes north of Tudisil driving. Yeah. Yeah. So it's out there. And I had helped her dad and some of the local farmers with some sheep herding one, one fall. They were bringing their sheep back down from the mountain. And one of the best memories from that, of course, well, running around chasing the sheep was awesome. But then when we had a break, they lit a fire and they put coffee in this kettle. Oh, yeah. Bowl coffee. Bowl coffee. Oh, cookie coffee. That's yeah. the best. <laughs> and, and they just put the whole thing in the fire, basically. Yeah. I can't remember. It must have been hanging over. A yeah, they normally have a stick or something okay, where it hangs yeah. over. Yeah. I, but I, I, just, I just remember the smell and being like, oh, damn, we're going to have coffee now. This is yeah. awesome because it was raining. You know, we're outside doing all this stuff. And uh, it was one of the sweetest cups of coffee ever. And maybe taste-wise it wasn't. I don't know. But it was the setting and everything like that. And I was wondering if you have... Um, a story like that where a, a cup of coffee that really stands out for you just because <laughs> of where you had it. Well, yeah, for sure. I went to Ethiopia for the first time in, I think, 2008. Yeah. And in Ethiopia, there's a tradition of making a coffee ceremony. So that means uh, you can pretty much get it anywhere, like uh, randomly by the road or at someone's house. or And they will start off by roasting the coffee beans in a steel pan over well, you can do that. You can just get this at somebody's house? Yeah. Really? Yeah. On the countryside, yeah. You yeah. pay for it, of course. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but I mean, a lot of people have their own little yeah. roasting setups and yeah. everything. Wow. 
So it's a tradition, uh, and so they will they will start burn, uh, burning some incense, like frankincense or whatever it's called, and then they might serve you some popcorn, unsalted, and then they will roast the coffee in a steel pan over a carbon kind of grill, yeah, and then pound it in a mortar, and then put it into this clay uh, jug. Uh, I think it's called a djembe or something, and then they will bo- boil the coffee, often with sugar, uh, and then serve it three times to you, and. Uh, you know, although they're doing everything wrong, like the coffee is not roasted evenly because it's in a pan. They're <laughs> pounding the coffee, so you know the grind size is all over the place. They're <laughs> boiling the coffee, which you shouldn't do, <laughs> but it tastes amazing. Really, and, uh, you know, it's just a, it's such a great experience. Yeah. Um, and even though I've been served pretty bad coffee uh, in that way, I still really like it because it's uh, the whole experience and. You just you sit there. You take the time to sit and wait for that cup of coffee, and it takes you know thirty minutes at least before you're served anything. Yeah. And then you have to sit another thirty minutes to drink and finish it. So that's uh, probably for me at least uh, the ultimate uh, coffee experience that I've had. And I've had it. I've had some amazing coffees also, like high quality stuff served that way. And it's right. uh, yeah, it's emotional. Just describing that, I'm sure it's so vivid for you put yourself there again yeah. <laughs> right it's, it's that's something about travel that's really special and then when you're combining that with something you're passionate about for you coffee let's talk about the travel portion of that i mean was travel a thing for you growing up or did you know you were going to get into all this traveling that you have Not to do all. now for, <laughs> um did you grow up traveling was your family um yeah a little bit so my family is kind of spread out a little bit. So my granddad used to live in Switzerland yeah. uh, and he had a flat in France that we used to rent every summer okay. and have our summer vacation in Sweet. France <laughs> uh, on the Riviera. So that was kind of luxurious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and also my dad had a little boat that we used to go, you know, two, three weeks down to Sweden in the coast there. Just, you know, driving around, swimming, you know, eating, having fun. Right. So that was kind of uh, the way I traveled then. But um, I didn't travel more than that, you know. It was summer vacation. Um, But then when I started in coffee, the first uh, thing was that, first of all, the the owner of the coffee shops that I ran was a very, very generous guy. So he would invite us to come to Monaco, for instance, for the first World Barista Championship, just to, you know, look at it and get inspired we didn't yeah. have to do, do anything oh that's cool and he would pay every, everything and then because i won some early competitions he would invite me to come to brazil to india just to you know look at coffee production and so on and then they didn't want to pay us a higher salary we asked for a higher salary me and my friend who was running the company after a while so, but they said you know you can get uh, thirty thousand crowns uh for traveling to, yeah. to educate yourself. Mm. And uh, so we had 30,000 crowns per year to, which is, you know, not a lot, but it, we made like two or three trips. Um, we went low budget and we went to like Cuba, Jamaica, you know, Italy a couple of times and so on. So I traveled a lot uh, in the first years during my coffee career. And then obviously when I bought my own company or started my own company, I started going to Origin because I wanted to, but also because I realized that it didn't help. When we were roasting coffee and brewing coffee, we were trying to you know, always make it better and tweaking and testing. It didn't matter how much we tested and tweaked, the coffee didn't taste better. Yeah. And it was all due to the ingredients because mm. the green coffee wasn't good enough. 
So then I realized, you know, I have to go to the farm and see what's happening there and see if we can improve the quality control at farm level uh, for the coffees we buy. And so that's how I really started traveling. And today I spend around 150 days per year traveling wow. to okay. origin. Two months a year on and my by own By origin, farm. you mean to the farm that yeah. the coffee comes from, right? So mainly Colombia, where I spend two months a year because I have my own farm there. Yeah. Uh, so I have to work on that. And But I also buy coffee from my neighbor. Elias, who sold me the land. And then a uh, couple of uh, weeks in Central America, uh, where I visit three producers that we work with in El Salvador and Honduras. And I also go to Kenya and this year, Ethiopia. Um, so cool. So it's a lot of travel because of that. And then in addition, you have, you know, invitations to go have a lecture in, you know, I was in Bucharest for uh, not long ago. I was in London to judge something, you know, there's always stuff there's always stuff happening in the coffee world yeah and i get a lot of invitations but unfortunately i have to say no because yeah. i don't have time so i'm lucky i caught you here because 150 yeah. days is a lot of days to yeah, be out of the country lot. yeah i actually calculated that i only have around 70 days per year work days in norway oh really <laughs> which is uh you know because we have weekends and holidays yeah, and yeah. i have a wife so you know yeah yeah the travel part of it when you started traveling around and you were going to these competitions and just learning did you get hooked on the travel part of it or was it sort of a necessity for what you were doing or was it, yeah, what was your relationship with that? Like, No, in the beginning I was hooked, you know, yeah, I loved sleeping in hotels and yeah. seeing new cities and so on. But now it's more like it's a job. So it's like going to the office. I try to have a good routines when I travel now so I don't have to spend a lot of energy on figuring stuff out. Yeah. And obviously I go to a lot of the same places over and over and over again. So I'll normally stay in the same hotel you know, I have a list of restaurants that I frequently go to. Uh, I have the same driver that I always use in Colombia, for instance. Right. So now it's more of a routine than it is uh, exciting. But I try to do some interesting stuff every now and then. So when I'm going to Ethiopia now, I'm going to new areas that I haven't been to. Uh, I went to Kenya was two years ago with a friend who joined me and we went to uh, to a rainforest just to have a hike you know and yeah. look at wild coffee and stuff like that hmm. so sometimes i try to explore some new stuff as well it's something i'm really interested in is having uh you know these little missions or just for you it's coffee so you get to have this thing that your travel revolves around in a way which always makes it fun because you are still getting to learn and grow something you're passionate about but you're also getting to explore the world i have this idea for some reason of you working on this farm in colombia and i'm getting like this idealistic picture of, of you being away from it all and just relaxing but that might not be the case at all i don't know is there <laughs> is there like a zen place for you where you go and you're and well being on the farm is actually that place yeah. um you, i get up you know when the sun rises so 5 30 ish and make a cup of coffee and then answer some emails because we're seven hours behind in Colombia from Norway. Uh, and then have breakfast at eight. And then after breakfast, I'll go out in the field working, either making compost, you know, mulching the trees or spraying compost tea or something like that. And that goes on till lunch. You eat lunch, you go out and work again. Yeah. You come back for dinner and have a quick shower, cold shower, of course. Um, and then you try to answer some emails or read something, but you just fall asleep. So it's not a lot of stress, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. So my brain is able to kind of not, I don't really think about work 
when I'm there. Yeah. Of, of course, I have to answer some necess- necessary emails. But uh, these podcaster guys emailing you, yeah, you know. <laughs> no, but it's it like working in the field is. I'll just put some music on, and then you walk the field. You will see a snake. Maybe you'll see some nice birds. You know, whatever. But it's really meditative. Even though you're working really hard and it's hot and you're sweating yeah. and it's humid and you're thirsty and you faint sometimes because you forget to drink and but um, it's do you, do you faint sometimes? Yeah, I've done it twice, but uh, <laughs> oh, not like serious, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, it's really uh, meditative, uh, and yeah. and that's kind of where I can relax. Although it's hard work. Yeah, because your version of, uh, well, you're, you're saying, oh, I, you know, it's more work now. But because of your work, your travel's so unique because you're interacting with all these locals. You're going to these local farms. And I think that's the beauty. Another beautiful thing about what you're doing is, you know, from the travel perspective, too, when you have that mission or something, then now you have sort of this, I'm going to call it an excuse, but this reason to interact with these people yeah. that live there that you would never have the chance to go visit yeah, yeah. or ever no, meet. No, I mean, the, the travel experience is totally different from when I go on vacation, for instance. Right. <laughs> then you book a hotel and then you have to research where to go. Yeah, you find a beach, you have to find restaurants. But when you when I travel and visit these producers that I've been visiting, you know, many years in a row, they'll take you to local places, you know, uh, you live in their homes. Yeah. So you don't have to sleep it's in so a boring hotel. The experience is very, very different from being a tourist because you actually... Uh, you know, I when I'm working on my farm, I actually stay on Elias's farm, which is my neighbor. I stay in his house for two, three weeks, and I encounter the meetings he has with his workers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you wouldn't experience otherwise as a coffee buyer, because normally we'll just book a hotel. You go to the farm during daytime. You might have dinner together, and you go back to your hotel, and life goes on. Yeah. But uh, once you live on the farm. Uh, you know, eat the same food. You you actually know how it is to be on a farm for yeah. a while. So it's a totally different experience. And I, you know, it's hard to say to other people you should try the same thing because you know you can't just show up to a farm and say I want to live in your house. But right. uh, <laughs> um, you know, you develop those relationships over years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But uh, I think you know when you go to a place. Uh, and this is something that Americans are very good at, that Norwegians are not, <laughs> is to talk to people. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's in a bar or a restaurant. Yeah, I, very, very often when I travel, uh, I get addressed by Americans who, you know, just ask me questions or whatever. It doesn't have to be any serious stuff, or but it's totally random. Yeah. Whereas a Norwegian person will never do that. Mm. You know, we are afraid of other people. But I've been told that's because that's your version of being polite. Is that true? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Like, because uh, yeah, my friend like David introduced me to this. Yeah, you don't want to bother people, and that's being impolite if yeah. you're talking to somebody. So it's actually you being polite, not rude, but the rest of the world might come, not the rest of the world, but people might come here and think, oh, well, yeah. you know, they don't talk, they're cold or something. But it's actually your version of being polite. Yeah. Is but that I think, true? I think it's a, uh, it's a thing that uh, at least Norwegians could learn a little bit from Americans because uh, more often than uh, not, it leads to something, you know, nice, especially when I'm traveling, I'm very often alone. So to just have a conversation with a random person in a bar about whatever can be a really nice experience. And Mm -hmm. then you go and then you never see that person again, but at least, you know, you have maybe learned something or, you know, it's one of the best parts about traveling. Yeah, I think so. Uh, The interactions and the random spontaneous 
yeah. conversations and people you meet. So a good, a good travel tip, that, because I always get a lot of uh, emails from friends, you know, I'm going to this city, where should I go to have coffee? Where should I go to eat? Like, I've been everywhere. I mm-hmm. haven't, but uh, normally what I would answer is like, you know, go to this coffee shop that I know is good and just talk to the baristas yeah. and they will give you good recommendations because they live there. You know? Right. I don't. So... Um, that's uh, probably the best way to for if you like into food and drinks, go to the good coffee shops and uh, ask the people who work there where to go because they will know. I'm always telling people, don't ask Google, ask people. Yeah, because you know, all the you have these search, you know, rankings and yeah. all this stuff. But um, advisor is not trustable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you still find the best places from talking to people. I agree, and, and it's more of an adventure, right? Because then. You're kind of doing it on the ground. You don't know yeah. where the day is going to go. You know, I'll say it for you probably because you won't say it, but you're you're a huge name in coffee and you're very well known. You don't have to work in a farm and dig your hands into the dirt. So, I mean, you say that's a meditative thing. Is that Was that like a dream, something you really wanted to do, just um, really go to the level of understanding it from where, you know, where it's growing and... Yeah. Because there's some, there is something about putting your hand, you know, <laughs> having your hands in the dirt, literally, to the coffee that you're bringing here. Yeah. Well, I'm a city boy, so I never right. dreamed of having a farm, you know. I yeah. didn't even want to jump in the hay when I was a kid no. because <laughs> my pants would get dirty. You know, I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> and there's a big farm culture here in Norway, so that's <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah, it is. <laughs> no, it, it kind of evolved because I went to a lot of farms and I was already working with a lot of producers, hands-on, you know, how to improve the product with the harvest and post-harvest processing techniques you had to learn all that because you didn't grow yeah. up on a farm but uh you know the more you see what's happening you try to con- kind of connect this coffee was really good how was that produced and you see the techniques and then okay this coffee was not so good why and then you compare the techniques and then you kind of learn from that yeah but uh it came to a point where i wanted to also see if you know we harvest the ripe cherries we sort out all the defects we process it well we dry it well yet the coffee didn't become that much better. It just yeah. became clean, you know, and yeah. sweet. So uh, now it, it, that kind of uh, sparked the interest of, can we actually make the coffee better before we pick it? Like if we treat the trees differently, if we treat the soil differently, if we treat the land differently, can we actually improve the quality? Which, which of course, there's a lot of indicators that say, yes, of course you can. Yeah. But um, I wasn't willing to risk uh, the economy of a farmer in order to test, you know, crazy ideas. So right. that's why I wanted to actually just rent a piece of land to test different things. And then Elias, that I buy coffee from, offered to sell me seven hectares of land. And I said, you know, it, it just made uh, sense. Yeah. So I did it. And um, <laughs> of course, then I realized that I didn't know anything about farming. <laughs> Let alone like where to get the supplies and yeah. you need and everything in a foreign country, right? So, yeah, exactly. That's also <laughs> there are a lot a of logistics. Nightmare. Yeah, it's a nightmare. But um, so I had to learn, and uh, that was also part of the project that I wanted to learn more about farming. And uh, I have learned a lot. Uh, I still don't know how to do it, mm-hmm. but uh, at least I've learned uh, what not to do. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> done a lot of mistakes. And I've done tons of reading. I've studied uh, with Dr. Elaine Ingham. She has online courses on soil biology. So I'm kind of following her teachings on, you know, improving the soil microbiomass, like microorganisms in the soil, and they will uh, help my trees grow. But uh, I'm not even close to getting there, you know. So um, Wow. Going from not 
wanting to jump in the hay to dealing with microorganisms. Yeah. <laughs> the soil is and a big, that's a big jump. <laughs> yeah. And now, now the whole goal with the farm is one, yeah, I'm going to learn, but once I kind of learn how to do natural farming or biological farming or whatever, uh, only using compost and, uh, you know, um, microorganisms to grow stuff. Mm. Once that works, because it will work, I'm yeah. pretty sure of that. Then the idea is to take what I've learned and try to teach it to other farmers so they can, you know, I'm not going to try to push it on someone, but I'll show them this is what we're doing. This is how it's working. And you can do the same if you want yeah. to. So that's and then everybody kind of gets the, better tasting coffee. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> but um, listen to Tim, farmers that you you're know, listening. Yields to. <laughs> might go down, whatever. Uh, so there's a lot of considerations that needs to be done when you shift to a system like that. But yeah. um, the, I am hoping that we can produce more coffee mm-hmm. and also higher quality coffee with this system and with much less costs for the farmers. Is Colombia? I, I don't know if that sort of happened organically, or, or is that a place where you connect with? with the culture on a deeper level, because I think there are certain places where you go and you, you just feel a connection with the culture for whatever reason. Is there a place like that in the world for you that you have a... Yeah, Denmark is that place for me. Really? <laughs> My okay. dad is Danish. Yeah. Uh, so whenever I'm in Copenhagen, I feel home actually. Oh, okay. But, um, huh. You speak uh, Danish, I guess? No, oh. but I, mean, I understand it. Okay, yeah. But uh, it's the same as Norwegian, yeah. more or less. Whatever I go to an origin, I always feel welcome. Um in Africa, I don't feel home because the culture is so different from what I'm used to. Uh, and I f- feel like, you know, because of the history, I'm kind of conscious about not trying to be the white man who comes and di- dictates and trying to be... Culturally sensitive. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. In Colombia, you know, they're so uh, hospitable. They they love to take care of you and they they, they just don't know what to do if you're if you're happy they just want to do more you know they're yeah. not satisfied with that so that was a, a culture shock for me it's very different from norway where we you know we like to be alone and don't be bothered it was more uh, that uh, the the coffees i've been there a lot and i've tasted amazing coffees yeah. uh, but not very often so uh, they they're the third largest coffee producer in the world uh, in terms of country and all the farmers are more or less growing more or less the same varieties. It's like three, four varieties that are planted in the whole country. People are doing the same system. So, you know, that's a good challenge for me to to check, you know, if I do it differently, will it become better or not? Yeah. Um, also, you know, it's legal for me to open a company there and own land, whereas in Ethiopia, for instance, okay. that's not Some allowed. Some practicalities. Yeah. yeah. So it's a mix of many different things. But also uh, they speak Spanish, which, uh, you know, for me is useful in other countries so I could learn that. So it was just, um, it's a mix of many things, but basically the most important was that the right person, Elias, Mm -hmm. wanted to sell me land and help me do the projects. And um, of course I had some other options. I could buy land in El Salvador and also in Honduras, but um, Colombia is a little bit more Stable, like mm. people think Colombia is very unsafe because of the narco, narcos uh, yeah. Netflix series, <laughs> yeah. you know, Pablo Escobar, right. the FARC, and so on. But uh, Colombia is a very, very safe country. Um, it depends on the area you go. If you go into the jungle where the guerrilla is, of course, you know that's not the safest thing to do. Yeah. And there's neighborhoods in the city that's not safe, and so on. But um, countryside is pretty safe, mm. and I don't, I 
I wish I could say the same thing about uh, Honduras and El Salvador, but uh, especially El Salvador is a bit uh, rough. Yeah. Um, so they have these gangs and stuff. So and it's much smaller country. Mm. So yeah, Colombia. That's where I decided. And also the climate there is a little bit more ideal for coffee. I think. Okay. Yeah. But Denmark feels like home, and that that brings us back to Scandinavia a bit because yeah. um, there was an article in the Telegraph last year that ranked the countries uh, who drink the most coffee per capita in the world. And five of the top six were Scandinavian countries. (laughs) And uh, Norway was number two. I think Finland was number one. So uh, why do people drink so much coffee here? (laughs) Uh, Do you have an answer for that question? Yeah, I do have an answer. (laughs) It's a complicated uh, answer, but um, there's two reasons. Uh, Let's start with the history. In the early 1900s, we had a prohibition period. Because everyone was basically making their own moonshine yeah. and drinking it all the time. So people were drunk all the time. Um, they didn't drink a lot of water because the rivers were polluted uh, from the industry. You know, mm, yeah. um, you could get sick and so on. So either it was a fermented beverage like uh, Mjöd, which is kind of like a beer with honey and stuff. Or it was beer or it was hard liquor that people drank. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, problems regarding this, both from uh, an employer's perspective and also from the church's perspective. I can't imagine the hangovers from either of those (laughs) drinks were very good. So a lot of social problems. So the the church started promoting coffee as a sober drink. You know, they would invite to church coffee, which we still have a tradition of today. Every Sunday Hmm. after mass, there's church coffee. Uh, And I think it it was initially made for women to come and socialize. Uh, but then become a, a so- social thing for people who didn't want to, you know, drink alcohol. Yeah. And the other part of it was uh, the labor party, uh, because there, it was quite common to pay people, you know, a little bit money and then the rest in alcohol. Okay. Um, so that <laughs> another you bad idea. Could right? Control <laughs> your workers. You know? Well, yeah, I guess. So the labor party, you know, <laughs> they thought that alcohol was a way to suppress workers and so on. So they would also promote coffee as a you know, a better drink. Right. So there was a lot of political and uh, social force behind promoting coffee as a drink. Okay. So that's why I think it caught on yeah. and became like a mass uh, thing. We also traded codfish with Brazil, so we got coffee in return. You know, so a lot of things. That's why, I mean, we didn't drink tea. We didn't have any connection with, you know, tea-producing right. countries. And then uh, you have the other aspect, which is the obvious one, where we have... Especially in the north, in the winter, we have 24 hours of darkness yeah, and it's cold. I hope you were gone for most of this last winter because it was a rough one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was, you know, I travel a lot during those months. So yeah. for me, it's fine. But, um, you know, uh, and as you'll notice, especially if you go up north to Tromsø or Finnmark, uh, that people's homes are always open. So if you are a neighbor or a friend, you don't have to call people to come and visit. Yeah. You, you just come. Yeah, that's a really and nice thing. There will always be coffee available on the table, you know. So if you come, there's always coffee Such and maybe some sweet. small cakes or whatever. Right. And you have the same culture in Iceland. Uh, you probably have it in north of Sweden as well, much more so than in the south. Like here in Oslo, you would never visit anyone without calling first. No. But if you come to a visit on a weekday, people don't serve wine or you know, at least we didn't used to. It's always coffee. Yeah. And uh, the offices, you know, are providing free coffee for everyone. That's just the norm. Um, the gas stations, they will lure you in to buy, you know, candy and hot dogs and whatever. 
because they will give you uh, like a reusable cup for uh, let's say ten dollars yeah. per year, right? And then you get free refill for the rest of the year. Mm. So people use this, you know, as a kind of incentive to come and buy stuff. So it's just the whole culture. Coffee is just the glue, I think, in our yeah. culture. Yeah, I don't see people. People don't look super caffeinated everywhere I go, no. but, th- but they are. Yeah. They are. They yeah. must be because they're drinking a lot of coffee here. I think it's like average five <laughs> or six cups per person yeah. over 16 per day. Yeah. Which I'm, is a lot. I'm, I'm good for two or three of those. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, you know, me too. Probably. But I think also the way we make coffee, uh, for instance, in Italy, they drink a lot of espresso. Yeah. But they don't waste a lot of espresso. Right. Because one espresso made is one espresso drunk. Yeah. Here we will make uh, maybe a liter of coffee. uh, And then we drink maybe three quarters of it. And then we throw the rest in the sink because it's been standing for too long. So we make a new one. So I think the sink is the biggest consumer (laughs) of coffee in Norway. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. That could be the case. Which is a disgrace. Like we shouldn't yeah. throw stuff away, but uh, that's the way we do it. Either way, there's a lot of coffee being drunk. Here, yeah, I guess. I wanted to ask you about following your passion because that's a thing that a lot of people give as advice nowadays. And some people say, "Oh, that's a terrible. That's terrible advice." You know, just because you say you're following your passion, what does that even mean? It's cliche. <laughs> is it even going to lead anywhere? Other yeah. people will say, "Well, that's." You know, you follow your passion, and then you never work a day in your life. Clearly, I mean, it seems to me, unless I'm mistaken, that you've always followed your curiosity and your and your passion in its natural direction, and just kept going. Did you? Uh, I don't know if you ever questioned if that would work out or not, or if it was just sort of organic and it just unfolded that way. But yeah, it was pretty organic. Like, uh, I started as a barista, then I started roasting coffee. I ran a company with a friend. I did all the trainings. Then I, you know kind of wanted to do more so i opened my own company i always knew that i wanted to be my own boss because i hate working for other people that was the thing that sort of yeah you held on to yeah yeah and uh i also i never liked doing what everyone else does so whenever all of my school friends started studying it's like why should i do that like everyone else is doing that that sounds like a bad idea um (laughs) which is totally anti yantalova by the way, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> in a way, but I, you know, I very early on realized that I have to work my way up in life uh, because I didn't, I was just tired of school and studying and all. Yeah. I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. So uh, for me, I've been working really, really hard for many, many years to achieve what I've done. But uh, it's also been with a goal and purpose. Like I knew early on that I wanted to start something on my own. I knew that I wanted to work my way up. So, you know, just coming showing up to work that's not good enough you know if i wanted to learn nobody's gonna you know come every day and like tim today you're gonna learn this like you have to seek it out yourself going beyond yeah Yeah. so uh, i have an example from another company a guy that i was working with uh, earlier he had um, uh, conversations with his employees and they said oh he was asking them, what do you want to do more of? And they said, oh, I want to learn more about tasting and so on in coffee. And then he said, like, why don't you do that then? And I said, well, we don't have time at work. Yeah, but the lab is here. You know, you don't have to go home at four o'clock every day. You can stay to 4.30 one day and do that tasting. You know, no one's stopping you. A lot of people just also just want to work. They just want to come to work at eight and go home at four. And they have a social life or, you know, hobbies or whatever. That's totally fine too. But for me, that's never been the case. I always wanted to achieve something more than I'm, I don't want to stand still. Yeah. 
So what would your be your advice? I guess follow your passion if you if you're prepared to put in the time, I suppose. Yeah, like, um, I think, you know, my advice to most people that if you hate your job, then leave and do something else. Yeah. For me, when I come to work, it doesn't feel like work. No. Um, I can work a lot because I'm having fun. Even when I'm answering emails, which I don't love, I know that it, it enables me to do a lot of fun stuff. So when you uh, have a job that you really look forward to com- going to every day, then uh, I think you'll have a much better life and less stress uh, rather than having a job that you just have to do. Yeah, And it's it's a privilege for me to say that I can do that. And it's not the same for everyone because, you know, there's a lot of countries where there's not a lot of jobs around. Sure. But uh, if you're kind of stuck in a job that you don't love, then try to make it a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah, That's always... I think that's the... You know, money and uh, success is not everything. If 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 I have a job that I'm happy with, that's success for me. Yeah, that's great, and it's great advice. And it seems for you, as for everybody, I guess there there are these sort of magical people that pop up at the right times, right? Like somebody taking you on a trip to yeah. to show you these things, or somebody says, "Hey, stay till four thirty, stay till five. Nothing's stopping you." It's these small. It seems like a small thing that they probably don't even remember saying it. Yeah, but because of their advice you just kind of kind of pushes you to the next thing yeah. i think that's uh and, you know it's not a coincidence that i was invited to go to monaco for instance sure because i was putting in the hours sure so uh it was kind of more like a reward for all the hard work that i was doing and they didn't have money to pay me so you know they invited me to come to, on a trip instead so uh there's nothing wrong in putting in the hard work but uh you have to put it in the right place as well really like yeah if no one notices, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. This is going to be a hard question to answer, but maybe you can do the very, very short version because one thing I want people to walk away from after they're listening to this is just a greater appreciation for their next cup of coffee, right? So yeah. we talk about your journeys around the world and, and travel and coffee, but I, I was wondering if you could just give us a quick overview of the journey that has to happen from the time the coffee beans come out of the ground to yeah. you're drinking it. I, I love to talk about these things and to, and to learn these things and to think about them even on a daily basis to really appreciate the everyday things that we have mm. that to be grateful for them and remember, oh, this isn't just, yeah, I just bought this at the store, but sometimes it's nice to think yeah. a little deeper <laughs> and think about the, all of the people that were involved that made it possible for us to sit here and enjoy this cup of coffee today. Yeah. Oh, it's a pretty uh, insane uh, value chain, actually, because it starts, you know, it starts uh, with planting seeds. It takes about four years before that seed is a tree that produces coffee at all. Uh, I just had a visitor at, in Colombia uh, from Poland, and he we sent him out to pick coffee for three hours. He came back with uh, about 11 kilos of coffee cherries. And then after we floated, we put them in water to remove all the floaters because they're bad. Yeah. And then we sort out the overripe and unripe. So there's only ripe coffees left because those are the good ones. It's like when you pick strawberries, you just want the ripe ones. And then we depulp that, ferment it, and then you have to dry it, and then you have to dehull it and sort it once more. And those 11.8 kilos of coffee cherries just became 0.8 kilos of roasted really? coffee. 
Wow. Uh, and it took him three hours to just pick it and then another you know, <sighs> hour to sort it. And then it ferments overnight and then it dries for 20 days and so on. And then we have to roast it. It takes, you know, 15 minutes to roast. But behind those 15 minutes is a lot of hours of testing and, and tasting. years of growing. and Yeah, and yeah. packaging. And then we have to send it. And then you have, you have to brew it. And uh, the thing is with coffee is that it's, it's fairly easy to make. It's fairly easy to make it taste good. But it's also really easy to make it taste really bad. And it just takes one little mistake in one of the parts of that chain to really destroy the potential of a good cup of coffee um so let's say we did everything correct and then you came along to brew it and then you forgot to clean your brewer so it's going to taste like dirty coffee anyway yeah you know so um <laughs> it's uh it's a product that is um it's quite uh, remarkable that uh we're able to serve a good cup of coffee because there's so many things that needs to to work out but then again we we have been working with it for a while and have a routine for quality control and so for us, it's an everyday thing now. But yeah, um, yeah it's it's difficult. And uh, <laughs> the only person that has you know a huge risk of in this value chain is the the grower because if his coffee isn't good enough one year, a lot of the buyers will just buy another one, uh, yeah. and uh, they will find coffee that's anyway. Tough. You know. Yeah. So um, yeah, I you know I that's what I'm trying to do with the. Uh, with a lot of the YouTube films that I'm making is that a lot of the focus is uh, on farms and farmers because uh, people have to realize that uh, it's not just a brown bean that you buy in the grocery store. Like you need to know where it's coming from so that you appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah. And that's, you know, we have been paying farmers way too low price for many, many, many years. The, the market price today is $1.09 or something, which is, you know, lower than it was in 1970. So um, that doesn't make sense. No, that's crazy. So in order to to people to realize that if they want to have coffee in the future as well, uh, it's a good idea to support the companies who are actually um, paying the farmers a little bit better and making the coffee traceable so that we can help uh, making a sustainable business for the farmers. How, how do we do that? What do we need to look for? To, to know? No, uh, I, I would say start buying traceable coffees. So... Uh, if it says Colombia on a bag, you know, that's not a traceable coffee. Uh, but if you, if you buy a coffee that is coming from an estate or a cooperative, at least that's partly traceable. Mm -hmm. If it's from an estate, it's fully traceable. And the, the most likely the people who bought that coffee would have paid a better price for it so that the farmer can, you know, progress and invest in his farm and so on. So, yeah, yeah I just left Colombia on Thursday and, uh, I heard on the radio that uh, the coffee growers are in Wheela, which is the state that I'm in, they're going on strike because the market price is so low yeah. and they need the government to, to you know, support them with mm. uh, more money. because Some subsidies? Uh, or, yeah. Yeah, okay. Which, you know, it's for me a little idiotic. If we were paying a fair price for the product and the government didn't have to subsidize it. Right. So. Right. And it's not a lot of money we're talking about, you know. Yeah. The market price is one dollar nine cent. The cost for production is maybe, you know, one dollar forty cent for them to break even. And then uh, if we just pay two dollars, you know, mm -hmm. that's not enough, I think. But uh, it would help. Yeah. So uh, it's not a lot of money for us, and uh, we just think about coffee as being this kind of cheap product that is supposed to be free in gas stations and you know, right. free in the offices and whatever. But um, we don't think about other products like that at all. No, that's true. 
Yeah, I had not thought of that. Um, you do a really cool thing with your service. You're totally transparent with the costs. Yeah, we try as much as we can. Yeah. So at least we publish every year the FOB price, which means the price we paid uh, either, well, most likely to the exporter. So free on board means the container of coffee was put on the ship in Honduras for that price. Yeah, okay. So um, when I say the market price, uh, that's the FOB price uh, for Arabica coffee. So that's why we compare ourselves with that price. So when let's say when we pay $5 FOB for a, a pound of green coffee to Elias in Colombia, he will get around $4 per pound. Yeah, so okay. uh, because there's some logistics and milling and exporters in between that needs to also get paid, like we have to use those services to sure. get the coffee here. So, but in Africa, it's a little bit more difficult to get all get to know exactly what each and every farmer was paid because uh, we're buying through cooperatives and they're paying the farmers again. And it, although it should be transparent, uh, you know, we're talking about thousands of farmers delivering coffee cherry to yeah, one cooperative. It's a so hard to. So we're working on getting a little bit more hands-on, especially in Ethiopia, and maybe trying to establish a relationship with a farm or a group of farmers. Yeah. So we can get that information and make sure that the value that they're adding to the coffee is paid back so they can invest in farms. And yeah, that's great. I, it's It really inspires me when I get to talk to somebody and meet somebody who's a business owner who is, in my opinion, doing it the right way. You know, being conscious <laughs> socially and yeah. being aware of the people that are involved. And it's not just about you know, the bottom line, yeah. as they say. You know, I don't think necessarily there is one way of doing it that is right. Uh, I try to do it uh, like I want to be able to go to sleep at night. Yeah. And I don't want to exploit people. And uh, I, just the fact that we're having this conversation means that at least we're doing something right by publishing these prices we're paying because people start talking about it. And the problem is if no one is talking about it, That's true. Uh, nothing changes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just just putting it out there is getting the conversation going. That's that's important. I wish more businesses were run that way. Yeah, and I mean, as I'm talking to you, American businesses. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as a consumer, just the fact that you're paying a very high price for coffee doesn't mean that the farmer was paid a good price, right? Because you have examples, for ex for instance, uh, if you buy Nespresso capsules, they're incredibly expensive per kilo. If you, if you calculate the kilo price per roasted coffee, yeah. it's incredibly high. But of course, most of that money doesn't go to the farmer. Right. And uh, I do know that they're actually paying uh, okay price to, uh, to, to the farmers because I can see on the purchasing points in Colombia what they're paying mm -hmm. to the farmers and it's above the market price, but it, it, it's still not enough. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, we can't be perfect consumers all the time. No. I get that. But it's like you said, the conversation and just just being conscious of it. I think when we're traveling and we see, you know, we might see some farmers and, and think, you know, how can I support them or something? Yeah. Well, there are ways, but we just have to try our best to be conscious of those. I think it is impossible to educate yourself on everything and every purchase you make. Yeah, for sure. It's something to think about. I think like in coffee, we uh, talk a lot about, you know, helping farmers and stuff. And then we stand there communicating with our iPhones, which, you know, right. <laughs> I don't even want to go into that, but right. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, that's the technology and travel things. A whole other yeah. question. Um, when it comes to all this, I mean, we're sitting in this beautiful new building, you got your espresso bar, you got your farm, you're doing all this amazing stuff. What about all this? Are, are you most 
proud of where you're at right now? <laughs> my employees. Yeah. I have to say. Yeah. Uh, How many people are working for you right we're now? We're 13 at the moment, including myself. Uh, but the fact that I can be on my farm for three weeks and they don't even call me. Yeah. Uh, I'm really proud of having been able to create that team. And, um, you know, it's all about making them responsible. Even though we're hiring a lot of times very young people, because those are the people who tend to want to work in coffee shops, uh, they very quickly grow up when they start working for us. And that's because we have very clear rules and policies of what is acceptable and not mm. to do as an employee at our place. They work really well as a team. They help each other become better. You know, no one really calls in sick. When I run a chain of coffee shops, people would just call in sick all the time, even though they weren't sick, you know. Um, because they've gone out drinking or whatever. Right. But here, that's not the case because, you know, they have a sense of uh, responsibility that uh, I'm really proud that we were able to create this uh, community in our you know, workspace. So, yeah, I'm just really proud of being able to work with that team. Congratulations um, on everything. The only thing I regret is that we finished our coffee and I was going to ask you how to properly taste coffee, but now my coffee's gone. <laughs> and this um, one is cold. If you want to give us a quick tutorial just so somebody's... to Drink a coffee after this and yeah. here's what you need to do. Well, <laughs> don't drink one coffee. Drink two coffees. Okay, drink two coffees after this. So this is how <laughs> I learned to taste beer and wine and everything. If, if Because if you just drink one cup, it's very difficult to to describe or anything because you don't have any reference to compare with. Mm. So I would say, you know, go to a store and buy either a Brazilian coffee or an Indian coffee or a Indonesian coffee. And then you buy a Kenyan coffee and then you make them side by side and drink them side by side. That's going to be a revelation because the Kenyan coffee is going to taste like blackcurrant juice, uh, rose hips, very fruity, very high acidity, very clean, very sweet, intense, Whereas the Indian or Brazilian or uh, Indonesian coffee will either taste earthy, nutty, chocolatey, very robust. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like eating uh, fresh berries next to a, a chocolate bar. Yeah, okay. So it makes it a lot easier to taste when you have something to compare mm. with. And the same goes with beer, you know, buy a wheat beer and then compare it to a stout. Then you can clearly taste the difference, you know. Right. And then try to describe what you're tasting when you drink a cup of coffee, try to describe what you're tasting without saying the word coffee. So that means when you put the coffee in your mouth, don't say, oh, this tastes like coffee, you know? <laughs> you, because you, there are, you know, aroma molecules in the coffee that are the same or similar to what you can find in strawberries or dark chocolate or caramel or, you know, nuts or citrus. And especially with the Kenyan, it should be very easy to pick out those fruit flavors. Yeah. And also, like with the Brazilian, you'll for sure taste some nutty flavors. I, hopefully not peanuts, but more like yeah, okay. almonds and, you know. So that's my tip. It's a great excuse, too, to just drink some multiple coffees. Yeah. This. <laughs> um, you know, a guy I just interviewed recently, he had an article that was an essay. And, and one of the things he talked about, because he was studying under this wine sommelier, and he, he said he was always bad with the tasting notes and trying to understand it and pick out, you know, berries and the things you're talking about. Yeah. But what he was able to do is equate a glass of wine with a particular piece of music, whether it was, oh, this one yeah. tastes like a Jimi Hendrix or this one tastes like, you know, this Janis Joplin song or whatever. That's another way to remember stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, it, it, I, I use colors. You do? So, uh, for instance, when I taste brown coffees, 
I, you know, in my brown categories, like milk chocolate, dark chocolate, nuts, uh, it can be popcorn, you yeah. know, stuff that reminds me of brown stuff, caramel, toffee, uh, purple, you know, if you buy purple candy, you know, you kind of expect what it's supposed to taste like. Yeah. If you buy green candy, you know what it's supposed okay, to taste yeah. like. So I use colors for these kind of things. Mm. If you uh, had to put a piece of music to your first morning cup of coffee, oh, what would it be? Definitely kind of blue Miles Davis. Miles Davis, yeah. nice. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, if you want to share where everybody can find you, and I mentioned your website, but go ahead and, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, our website is the hub for everything, but um, if you're interested in coffee, there's a lot of great content on our YouTube channel, I think, from okay. the farms that we're working with, and uh, uh, that's a great way to learn. We also have brewing guides there. So it's kind of a center to help people make better coffee. Awesome. It's timwendelbow.no. We'll link up to that in the show notes. I loved uh, your mission statement here. I'll finish with this. You said our goal is to be among the best coffee roasters and espresso bars in the world and to be a preferred source for quality coffee knowledge and innovation. That says it all. And I, I just love the intention behind that. It's There's no small thinking there. No. You know? You got to have hairy goals, you know? <laughs> One of the best in the world. And you know, why not put that intention into what whatever you're doing? I really appreciate your passion and what you share around something that I'm passionate about and excited about. And I'm excited to learn from you. And I was thrilled to get to share a cup of coffee that you made today. So I really appreciate your time. And thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. I usually high five it out when we're in person here. All right. <laughs> Cheers. High five is good. <laughs> There you go. Thanks for hanging out, listening in on my conversation with Tim. And thank you, Tim, for stopping by this Zero to Travel podcast and sharing your story. I'm always so inspired by people who really dive deep on something. They get excited about something and they follow that passion through. And then it seems always to lead to so many different opportunities that would have never materialized if you didn't go down that path in the first place. Not only that, I just think it tends to lead to a more fulfilling life. Because, of course, our time is limited, and if we're filling our time with things that excite us and that we're curious about, it's just never-ending fun to explore and to play and to be kids in that way. Even though we're adults, we can still be kids in some way. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, where passion meets travel and where travel meets passion and all that good stuff. And I have a shout-out to share in just a moment. I want to just first quickly thank Aeropress for supporting today's show the world's best coffee maker, aeropressinc.com. Go to the website, check it out. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is the same coffee maker that Tim uses at his espresso bar. So if it's good enough for him, I'll let that speak for itself. aeropressinc.com, thanks to them for supporting the show and for making me delicious coffee every day because <laughs> I use this thing nearly every day. Okay, now this whole idea of... Traveling leading to the discovery of new passions and sometimes for others, passions leading to more travel. I certainly think that was the case with Tim. His passion was coffee and he followed that and because he got into the coffee world and went so deep into that world, wanting to know, even you know, put his hands into the soil and understand how coffee is produced and go to the places where it was made and everything like that. The love of coffee kind of led to more travel. And of course, as you can hear, it sounds like that's something that Tim really enjoys as well. He's doing it for half the year. I don't think he'd be doing it if he didn't enjoy it. 
And on the other side, passions can be discovered out on the road. I remember on my first big international trip, overseas solo trip through Europe, getting to Austria and having an opportunity to hike in the Alps and just thinking, okay, well, this is just an activity I'm going to go do because I always loved being in nature. And we went on nature walks in the woods and things like that growing up, camping and all that. So it's not like I hadn't been exposed to the outdoors and hadn't had a love for it. But I had never been on a hike where I was in big mountain scenery, the kind of mountains that you see maybe on TV or in magazines and you dream about. And then you're there breathing the mountain air and drinking water coming off of a glacier and taking a cold beer from a carved log that has cold water running through it off the mountain at lunchtime at some mountain hut with epic 360-degree mountain views. And I can just put myself there right now. And I just knew immediately, I love this. I love this whole idea of just hiking in the mountains for hours. (laughs) And that just being the thing you do for the day or for many days in a row. And it started shaping my trip because then I went to Switzerland and I ended up staying in a mountain hostel in Gimmelwald and just spending days hiking. And of course, later on, many of my travels were built around trekking and hiking and that sort of thing. And that was really the first time I fell in love with it. So that was an example, a personal example for me of something that happened on a trip that led to a lifelong passion that's separate from travel. Of course, you can combine the two, right? Like I like I talked about, I built my whole trip to Patagonia when I spent about three and a half months down there just around trekking and hiking and did whitewater rafting and other things. But it was mostly about being in those big mountains and just hiking for hours and getting that workout and getting those views and getting that sense of accomplishment and freedom and fresh air and all the beautiful things about just being outdoors and experiencing nature and then getting to do that in different countries. It was really a great way to combine my love of travel with a new love, a newfound love. And of course, when you go out on the road, you're going to be exposed to new things, maybe things you hadn't done before. And it's quite easy to find something new that gets you really excited and that puts your life in a totally different direction. So this is another layer to travel that I just wanted to explore with you. And I'm wondering if you are intentionally building your travels around other passions or if your passion is leading to travel and then you're discovering, oh, wow, I didn't expect this, but I really love this travel thing. And and now it's becoming these two things combined together that I love. Either way, I think being on the road for an extended period of time opens us all up to the possibility of exploring current passions, but also discovering new ones, which is another in a long list of things to love about travel. So there you go, some thoughts on the intersection of travel and passions. And I want to give a shout out to Serenity, who wrote me an email. She said, Hi, Jason. First, I love the podcast. Last summer, I finished grad school. My husband and I sold our house and most of our things, and we house sat and work away across Europe for six months. We watched seven dogs and 12 cats in Cyprus. 
worked on an olive farm in Sicily for three weeks and had many other wonderful pet sitting and travel experiences. We are currently working on creating the travel slash work balance life that we desire. Your podcast provided us with so much inspiration, lots of helpful information. I appreciate what you're doing and the awesome content you provide. I never get tired of hearing travel stories and the different lifestyles people are creating for themselves. Thanks for the email, Serenity. I never get tired of hearing that either. (laughs) Hundreds of shows later, no, I mean, this is what I love. I love having these conversations and I love sharing them with you. And this is the point of it, right? To to hear these perspectives, to hear these stories. And uh, also now, Serenity, you're on the other side of that because I just shared your story. So I want to thank you for taking the time to drop me a line and congratulations on what sounds like a very fun experience Seven dogs and 12 cats, 19 different animals. There it is. Thank you for checking in and listening to the show. And if you're interested in house sitting or some of these other ways to travel and you're trying to learn more, you're trying to discover, hey, how am I going to travel next? Whether it's your first trip or your 40th trip, things are always changing, right? If you go to zerototravel.com, you can sign up over there and get a whole bunch of information for free that you don't get on the podcast. And you can keep in touch with me and hear about in-person meetups and workshops online and other things I'm doing. So if you haven't signed up over there, would love to have you in the global community, the Zero to Travel Caravan online off the podcast. And we have talked a lot about combining your passion and travel. And if you want to do that with a business, your own business, a lifestyle business, if you go to locationindie.com, locationindie.com, we run a whole community to help people that are starting their own thing so they can work from anywhere, that whole work, travel, lifestyle, whether you want to be a digital nomad or you just want to work from home and, and have the flexibility to travel more, we can help you. Just sign up over there. Also, have a podcast called Location Indie if you're looking for more podcasts. Uh, that's another one I have, so you can check that out. And I want to say thanks for your time today. Thanks for being a part of this community. Thanks for being a rock star. You, my friend are an amazing, unique soul. And I really appreciate that you're here. I'm going to leave you with a couple quotes about coffee, some anonymous quotes. I don't know who said these. I found them on the internet, but they're kind of funny. The first one is, coffee helps me maintain my, quote, never killed anyone streak. (laughs) It's a little dark, that one there. Okay, and the last coffee quote here, the most dangerous drinking game is seeing how long I can go without coffee. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.